coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. Our objective is to focus on giving regional and community banks the tools they need. Mm-hmm. Money movement is about real-time transfer between one user to another, mm-hmm. real-time payments from one business to another, real-time settlement of transactions to debit cards, credit cards, and so forth, real-time access to loan funds, you know, the ability to make payments to anyone and everyone whenever it suits, the ability to get paid on time and in fact, real time. So, you know, they're the sorts of things that we focus on because Mm -hmm. we're ultimately looking to give tools that help our customers have a better relationship with their customers. Welcome to the show, I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Richard Stegall, who is the CEO of Urban FT. Now, Urban FT is in the fintech space, and I'm not going to get into what fintech actually means here. I know that there's probably quite a few questions. We actually talk a little bit about that uh, during the show. But what we really focus on in this in this program is how Richard got into the fintech industry, into the fintech business, which was a very, very interesting story in itself, but also how they are growing their company and how they're growing their, their culture and how they identify the right type of person for whatever role or task they're trying to solve in their company. They have a, a unique way of, of identifying those types of people. So great, great episode. If you're looking to expand your team, grow your business, grow your, grow your culture, you're not going to want to miss today's episode of Pass the Secret Sauce with Richard Stegall. It was interesting to say the least. I, I grew up in a sort of a broken household in the sense my parents actually separated when I was seven. Then both parents remarried, so I ended up with new siblings from new marriages. I also had a household that had three generations in it, my grandparents, my parents, and and of course, me and my siblings. And then at times when I actually revisit that family table in Australia, now I've got my kids and and my nieces and nephews, so you you have four generations in some cases. The family table was one of sort of challenging one another, egging each other on, but also encouraging one another, talking about what was going on and having fun. But generally, it was always a fun place. And, and were you exposed to any type of entrepreneurialism early on, or did you have any aspirations to own your own company early on at all? You know, I, when I was probably in about 10th grade, was the first time that I could see that my passion was sort of boiling over mm-hmm. and that it was highly likely that I would probably end up doing something in the entrepreneurial space. Mm -hmm. Uh, Exactly what I was going to do, I had no idea. You know, in the late years of elementary school, even right through sort of junior high, as you would call it over here, I actually ran a car washing business where we literally solicit a regular book of clients in in the neighborhood. And we built a 
like a billy cart that would carry around the vacuum cleaner and the, the hoses and all of our cloths and so forth. And we would literally do our rounds every Saturday and Sunday and we'd oh, I love that. take our money and off we go. But to me, that was just a, a way in which to earn money to buy the stuff that my parents wouldn't buy. Mm -hmm. I started reading about some younger entrepreneurs in Australia who took on the postal service there and were effectively within the, the central business districts of, of different state cities were offering same day delivery. So sort of a hybrid between traditional mail and mm -hmm. courier services. And um, was this back when you were growing up? This was when I was in 10th grade. Oh, wow. So this and, was, yeah. And I thought to myself, wow, that's incredibly um, clever and um, disruptive in a sense before the word disruptive even became something that you wanted to yeah. say to people. And it also showed me that actually entrepreneurship was possible. And so, you know, as they say, the rest is history. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I can't say that I really had that type of exposure growing up where I, where I saw something that was, you know, like you said, disruptive, like now everybody's looking like, what can I, what can I change about? It doesn't matter how big the company is or if it's governmental or what, but yep. I mean, they're, they're, they had that, that, you know, that, that foresight to be able to, you know, jump into something like that early on. That's, that's interesting. And, and then you recognized, you know, that that's really something there. So that, that's great. Yeah, I think, I think the other thing, though, is I did accidentally end up in entrepreneurship. Perhaps it was always meant to be. I accidentally ended up in my first business when I was 18. Okay. I was meant to, I managed to convince my parents to allow me to defer university for a year so that I could travel abroad. I never ended up traveling abroad. I, I mean, I did, but not for a long time like I expected. And I ended up opening uh, a business within the mobile phone sector. It was the oh, right wow. time, right place. And through dumb luck, I ended up doing it and yeah. became incredibly successful and then became an incredible failure. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I've read so many people say that you, you actually can't be successful unless you've had, you've had a few failures along the way. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely those failures that have taught me to persevere. There's no problem that you can't overcome and ultimately, you know, just stick with what, it, 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 stick with the common good and you'll, you'll succeed. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I just heard there's a saying I just heard a couple of days ago about like something like your yes is coming, something along those yep. lines. You know, so so you know, same, same, some same type of premise. You you have to hear no, no, no. You have to have the failures, you have to, mm -hmm. you know, go through all of that. And and it's the people that are willing to go through all of that that ultimately end up hearing that yes and end up exactly. being being successful at some point. Well, this is great. So, so you, you really started, you know, quite young with your entrepreneurial journey. Did you, did you actually ever end up making it to university or, or did you jump right into that business? And, you know, I don't believe that I was built to be an academic, but I did make it to university in 2008. I applied as a, a mature age student to do my MBA mm -hmm. at a reasonable, uh, university in Australia, got accepted, uh, did the first semester, had kids and deferred it, never went back again. Mm -hmm. So I just feel that academia just wasn't for me. I really had to be a, a self-taught business person. I watch and aspire to follow other successful entrepreneurs and, and business leaders. I do my best to learn from my mistakes. And more importantly, I try to have a lot of fun in what I do and the people I work with. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we're in the uh, we're we're cut from the same cloth as far as that's concerned. Pretty well the same story for me. 
Do you talk a little bit about, I guess, some of the the things that you realized that you did wrong with, you know, your first company that had success and then failure and, you know, what, what were some of those learnings and how are you, how did you change the next time around? I'm not certain that I changed the next time around. I think I took a few beatings before I realized I had to change something. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this, uh, this sort of bastardized version of, of, I think it was Einstein's theory of, of, um, the definition of insanity. Yeah, the maybe. definition of insanity. Yeah. Doing more of the same and expecting a different result. Yeah. It took a while for that to sink in for me. But I think fundamentally, the thing that I had to learn and realize, there is nothing, you, you don't need to lose your self-esteem. You don't need to feel a loss of pride just because something doesn't go to plan mm -hmm. or just because something fails. I think when you are unable to meet an obligation that you set in good faith or something just doesn't work out and you've got to deliver bad news or you're facing this sort of imminent crisis, mm -hmm. you know, as a, as a young person and as an ex inexperienced person, you stick your head in the sand and hope that it's going to work out. Yeah. And I was really good at that. <laughs> and I was good at it because <laughs> I was so fearful of delivering bad news. And I had someone actually tell me one day, he said, you're, you're so good at giving me all the great news really quickly. Mm -hmm. I need to hear the bad news just as quickly. Mm -hmm. And it resonated with me. I thought, that's right. And what I quickly, well, quickly, actually it wasn't so quickly. What I eventually learned, but once I realized that it quickly resonated with me, was that people are okay hearing the bad news. In fact, if you go to someone and say, you know, I made a commitment that we would do this in the deal. We simply cannot deliver that mm -hmm. for the following reasons. We, we, we can sort of resolve it in this way or that way. As long as you go to them and say, I have a problem. I have a proposed solution. I really need to work with you. And I hope you will work with me mm -hmm. to, to get through this. Virtus Technology is a custom business software solution provider. Are you tired of manual entry into an old system that creates more work than it helps? Does your company suffer from constant pain and frustration around its business processes? Do you spend a lot of time and money trying to hunt information down or figure out what is happening in your business? Virtus Technology can help solve all of this. We evaluate your current processes and then create custom software or mobile apps to automate and streamline your business process, eliminating a lot of those pains and frustrations. Unlike other systems, our goal is to digitize your current processes and systems so that your staff's learning curve is very small. If you're ready to take your business operations to the next level, give Virtus Technology a call today. I don't actually think I've met anyone that said no. Um, and in fact, people are generally empathetic. They want to work with you. They want to also be helpful. They feel good about helping you in a moment of need. So when you recognize that there's really no harm in going forward with bad news, and the reality is, is that life is full of bad news. You just hope to get more good news on balance. Then you can actually persevere. And then you can actually truly move forward. As long as it's following the sort of the the saying uh, two or three steps forward one step back 
-hmm. You've just got to maintain forward momentum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people really get caught up in, you know, with social today too. I mean, obviously, like you said, everybody's so excited to, to scream from the rooftops about all their successes and, you know, driving around in the nice cars and all of that. But, but, you know, humanizing yourself and bringing yourself down and, and talking about some of those failures or some of those things that may not be going as well. You know, when you can, when you can publicly talk about those things too, you know, again, it just humanizes you and everybody can be empathetic, like you mentioned right. and, and that. So yeah, great, great advice there. So, so talk a little bit about, so you're in FinTech now. Um, talk a little bit about what FinTech actually is. Like what, what, what type of industry does that, does that serve? FinTech can be a whole range of things to a, a, to a whole range of different audiences. Mm -hmm. Financial technology or FinTech, as it really relates to what we do as an organization here at UrbanFT, is primarily focused in one area, and that is supporting regional and community banks with the tools and the strategies that they need in order to be innovative, in order to be relevant, in order to be competitive, and in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. In fact, we started off this business saying we wanted to level the playing field. We actually, we wanna be a bit more bold than that now. We wanna tilt the playing field. Okay. We wanna tilt the playing field in favor of the regional and community banks, as well as these challenger and neo banks. And the reason for that is that the big banks for so long have had the competitive advantage being the geographic footprint or the branches that they had. We all know, and we've seen more so than ever during COVID, that the, the, the physical footprint is not, is not a competitive advantage anymore. It's now about the digital relationship that these banks or institutions have with their end users. Now, if you've got a, a intuitive digital relationship and you're able to provide the sorts of solutions that are needed in today's society that meet today's needs, they don't mind if you're a three branch bank in the flyover country or you're a you know, 200 bank branch with you know, some branches spread across the country. I think also when you look at the financial institutions who have got asset sizes of sub $2 billion, which a lot of what the regional and community banks have versus those with asset sizes above say 10 billion, there's a fundamental difference in their approach. Those that are the two big to fail institutions are really focused on delivering the bare minimum to their users for user retention so that they can deliver shareholder wealth. Those that are on the lower end of the spectrum, the sub $2 billion in asset size, they're focused on winning customers, which means that they've got to actually deliver a superior solution. Mm -hmm. And so when we align ourselves with those that are actually wanting to deliver a superior end user experience, we find that it's actually a really complementary match. And that's the reason why we want to tip the playing field in favor of the smaller guys. Mm -hmm. And how did you, how did you get into this industry in the first place? How, what, what led you to this? Did you have some type of exposure into this, 
into this and you saw uh, you know, a, a, a gap or a problem or what was, what was that story? How'd you get into this? Um, by accident. And I, I find that most positive things are things that you stumble across as opposed mm -hmm. to go looking for. So, you know, I, I worked my way into ultimately corporate finance that had a, a focus more on the telecommunications and uh, media sector. I specifically ended up focusing around the funding and acquisition of distressed assets. And of course, that got quite interesting between 2008 and 2010. Yeah. But and what, type of asset, what, what types of assets was that? Any, anything across all types of industries or? No, with a specific focus on telecommunications and media. Got it. And, and primarily within Europe and Asia. I, I had limited dealings here in the US. And, and it is an interesting story as to how I ultimately ended up here in the US and, and in particular New York. But the short version of it is that I was an investor in a, a small business that ultimately ended up moving into contactless payments within the United Kingdom. Okay. And I was traveling here in the US, I was speaking at a conference and I happened to be sitting alongside Anil Agarwal. And he was a payments pioneer and veteran. And I had no idea who he was. You know, some would say he's almost payments royalty. Mm -hmm. And I told him what we were doing. And he said, well, if ever you're in New York, I'd love to meet you. I said, well, I'm going to be there next week. Mm -hmm. And I went in and saw him and really had very limited understanding as to what the opportunities were here. Told him what we'd done in the UK. Told him about some of the explosive growth we'd had. And he said, look, there's probably a market for that here in the US. You should look into it and we'd be happy to work with you and help you. And sure enough, he helped show us the way. And we determined we'd start a business called Waspit, which was an alternate banking proposition for the student demographic. Again, became a really sort of user-driven application, really different for its time. And we were way ahead of the curve in terms of what we were getting out. And we were approached by both Visa and TSIS at the time to say, look, would you make this available to other smaller banks who don't have the R&D budget or capabilities to actually deploy some of these oh, wow. services? And at that time, I said, look, no, I, I think we need to stay focused on our core activities. But again, by not being too proud to, to change our ways, I recognise that if we want to succeed, um, growth on a B2B to C model was probably going to be far more or far more advantageous to us than simply being a B2C provider. Mm -hmm. And so we ended up moving into becoming a white label digital banking platform. Okay. We renamed to Urban FT with the idea of taking financial technology out into the urban areas. Mm -hmm. And we, morphed, we, we sort of morphed into uh, what we are today, which is a fintech core where we deliver all the payment, digital banking, money movement capabilities that banks need that they can't get from their incumbent banking core. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so, so when you were, when you were talking about like, like moving money around, you know, so that, that makes me think of, you know, some of the newer companies and maybe, maybe not necessarily newer in, in your sense of, of the term, but I'm like, there's, there's a company called Ripple that, that mm -hmm. is in the banking industry that, you know, essentially helps with that swift transaction. Are, are, are you familiar with that? And do you see any type of impact from a company like that in your industry or are you maybe even using it or what, what are your thoughts there? 
look, companies like Ripple and TransferWise and others are all in their own way having an impact within the industry. You know, Ripple really came out and, and focused on, I'm going to call it digital currencies versus, versus cryptocurrencies. Mm -hmm. There is no doubt that everything is eventually going to be a digital currency, whether it's a fiat currency, whether it's asset backed, you know, only time will tell. I have my own personal opinions there, but they tend to not necessarily correlate with the opinions of others we do business with. We have no desire to really get into the crypto space. Mm -hmm. We don't need to. Mm -hmm. Our our objective is to focus on giving regional and community banks the tools they need. Mm -hmm. Money movement is about real-time transfer between one user to another, mm -hmm. real-time payments from one business to another, real-time settlement of transactions to debit cards, credit cards, and so forth, real-time access to loan funds, you know, the ability to make payments to anyone and everyone whenever it suits, the ability to get paid on time and in fact, real time. So, you know, they're the sorts of things that we focus on because mm -hmm. we're ultimately looking to give tools that help our customers have a better relationship with their customers. Mm -hmm. TransferWise, Ripple, they serve niche needs and I think they're all doing a great job in their respective areas. But as I said earlier, fintech can mean different things to different people and different audiences. Mm -hmm. What would you say that you guys excel at? So, so I'm a regional or community bank. You know, these are the problems that I'm having. What are some of the common issues that you see these community banks, you know, running into time and time again that you guys have identified as being, mm. you know, very very successful and and adept at you know, that, that portion of, of the business. We excel at technology. We are first and foremost, a technology organization. We are the first FinTech core in the world. Mm -hmm. We effectively centralize every product or service that these banks could ever need now and into the future into one platform so that the clients we serve only need to have one connection outside of their banking core. Historically, every different service, third-party service that a, a client wanted to access, they had to build their own middleware. Mm -hmm. They had to do a connection. Mm -hmm. It's expensive. It prevents true innovation. It becomes cumbersome and clunky for the user. And it really prevents that objective we have of tilting the playing field. Mm -hmm. So what we excel at is technology. We excel at allowing people to be innovative, relevant. And I think, you know, to be very candid, we only realized what we excelled at about two years ago. We built awesome technology, but when we launched our X35 FinTech core, we knew that we had the best technology and we know it, our clients know it and our competitors know it. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You, 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 you keep saying we, you obviously you've probably built you know quite a team behind you as well to to be able to support all of this. I, I can only imagine you know the the different hoops that need to be jumped through when dealing with banks. Can you talk a little bit about your approach to building a team and what your thoughts are on on you know finding the right people and and building culture so that you know everyone plays nice in the sandbox together? Any any thoughts there? Firstly, it takes time. It's a process of trial and error. Some people work, some people don't. 
it is actually about a culture though. And you've got to have people who share the vision, who share the passion and are, and are in it for the long haul. Again, I think with age and with experience comes the ability to sit back and take criticism, be open to other people's ideas, be willing to change your own ideas. More importantly, I think you have to have people who are as strong as you, if not stronger, working alongside you mm -hmm. because you can't do everything yourself. Now you, you may, in fact, I may be able to go off and do some of these things falling short of coding and I might be able to do some of these things better than some of my staff, but you can't do it all. Mm -hmm. And so you've just got to give them the ability to do it their own way, know that they're going to excel at it and know that you'll work through the good and the bad when things come up from time to time. So it is about finding the right people, treating them as a team, treating them as peers and enjoying the successes. Yeah. Now, are you, are you pulling in talent from, you know, all types of different cultures and different, uh, you know, areas around the world, or are you focused in on, you know, specific, specific, <laughs> I guess, geographic locations and, you know, specific types of skill sets? I, I guess, firstly, we, we always take the approach of just-in-time hiring. Mm -hmm. So we, we've been a very capital-efficient organisation. If you're not capital-efficient, you're not going to be profitable. And, and uh, we enjoy now being profitable. When we look to hire someone, we don't look at where they're coming from, who they are, or even necessarily where they've been. Mm -hmm. We really look at what skills do they bring to the table? What insight? What passion? Are they the right person for the role that we have? And again, unlike most traditional organizations, we don't simply say, oh, you've got to have a COO or you've got to have a chief revenue officer. And, and we don't take the sort of Google 101 type definitions of, of what those roles need to be. We set roles that are actually needed for our organization and the sort of bespoke nature of what we deliver. And so we've got to find people that are a true fit with the requirements we have. In some cases, we'll find someone that's truly exceptional so we'll actually craft the role around them. Now, whether they're local, whether they're from overseas, whether they're any race, any gender, I mean, it, it, none of that comes into it. It's all about the right person for the right role at the right time. Yeah, and that, that, that's sometimes hard to, to determine if that person is right for that role. Do you have any frameworks or, or anything you know, that you've used over the years of, or have realized over the years as a way to be able to, you know, identify, I guess, I guess first identify that, Hey, you know what, this person is a good fit for this role, or is it, you know, you know, is it, is it more of a, you know, a gut type feeling and, and maybe some initial tests or anything like that? I guess, how do you, how do you go about identifying, you know, what this, this person mm -hmm. is exceptional for this role or, or, you know, this person might be a good fit for this new division or new new product that we're working on or whatever it may be hmm. it's not easy and these days everyone's really good at talking up a good game hmm. i think there's a couple of things you have to go with the gut instinct because resumes and linkedin that's really painting the picture that they want you to see mm -hmm. so you've really got to dig beneath the surface and and try to get to understand the the real sort of individual versus the persona that they're putting forward. Yeah. The second thing is in nearly every role that we now try to recruit for, we ask them to do some sort of activity. 
Now, whether it's someone going into our experience team, we will actually give them a, in a sense, a problem to solve for. Mm -hmm. And we might say, here is a user, a set of user requirements for this particular type of function that we need to, or functional problem that we need to solve for. How would you solve for it? Mm -hmm. You know what? It might require them to put five to 10 hours of personal work into doing it. But think of it like your college admission, admission essay. If you really want to work for us, you're going to yeah. do it. Yeah. And you're going to solve for it. And we can actually get to understand the psyche of the individual, how they approach a problem. And they might be, they might be completely off base with the outcome they get to. But you want to see that, one, they've put the effort in. Two, that they've actually applied some sort of methodology to what they've done. And three, whether or not they've actually been able to listen to and digest the directions that were given to them. Mm -hmm. And you can do that from a solution for the experience team, a small coding exercise for the technology team, a financial modeling exercise for the finance team, or even a marketing exercise on a product marketing or a communication strategy within our marketing area. And that actually helps us weed out a lot of the, the sort of more, um, you know, those that aren't going to be a good fit. Yeah, those yeah. that put the effort in really do work. And we've had some awesome success stories. Our CTO, for example, started off with us at Waspert. He'd just got his master's in computer science. He'd had a couple of years of experience, but he started off as an intern. Mm -hmm. And he was just a rock star. And, uh, you know, it shows that that sort of approach does work. I look at our head of experience. She started off as an intern. Mm -hmm. I look at our CMO. He didn't quite start off as an intern, but he practically was an intern. And so when you actually foster the right culture and bring the people in who share the, the vision and the passion, you, you, you see a lot of success stories. On the odd occasion that it's not working out, realize it quickly and cut them loose quickly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, couldn't, couldn't agree more. That, that I, I, love, I love the approach of taking or administering a, call it a test or trial or or exercise, whatever you want to call it, but actually, you know, it's not a, a five minute test, you know, it's not a, not something mm -hmm. that they can finish, you know, very, very quickly. They do actually have to, you know, put some effort in and, and, you know, you can, like you said, you can obviously tell the people that have put the effort in and yep. that concentration and, you know, they're the ones that are going to stand out. I love that. I love that approach. And that's, that's something that I think every business, you know, could absolutely learn from and, and apply in whatever, whatever type of talent they're looking for. So yeah, huge, huge piece of advice there. Richard, this has been fantastic. If people want to learn more about you or your company, what would you say is the best way to get in touch there? You know, there's a lot of information about our business, about our team, about the customers we, customers we serve, our culture and so forth, all on our website, which is urbanft.com. That's a great starting point. It's got a lot of contact information there. And a lot of information period and i i like the the way that you guys came up with the name too you know bringing yeah. bringing financial technology to uh to the urban environment so yeah, I, I, I like that uh, nice quick little succinct way to be able to explain how you got your, yep, that's how right. your name so no richard again thank you this has been fantastic i i certainly appreciate you spending the time here on past the secret sauce and uh, look forward to hearing some more things from you guys in the future matt i really appreciate the opportunity and um uh, good luck with this podcast yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.